Jamie Lewis, and this is Consumed, a podcast where eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers can get real. Thanks for joining me. Consumed is sponsored in part by Slow Life magazine. Over the past several years, I've written the food column for Slow Life, and I've covered many, many different restaurants and dishes here in Slow County. Some of my favorite subjects have been fried chicken, educational dining, and I even recently wrote about the free bread at three different local eateries. Slow Life is much more, though, so get your hands on a copy every other month. To find out how, visit slowlifemagazine.com. I learned about Father Ian Dellinger through some work I'd done at KCBX, the San Luis Obispo Public Radio Station. Father Ian is the priest at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Slow, and he also produces a show that airs monthly called Playing with Food, which dives into the food culture, history, and people of California's Central Coast. I found out that Father Ian learned how to conduct radio interviews and edit tape during his time as a chaplain in England, where he was ordained into the Anglican Church. He has a rich background and a deep love for good stories, which I appreciate. Listen to our interview to hear his take on pop music, grief and food, and the epic, delicious party he wants for his last meal. Here's my interview with Father Ian Dellinger. Father Ian, thank you so much for coming to my house. Well, thank you for having me here. It's super fun to see you at my front door. Um, I'm just curious, what did you eat for breakfast? But, oh, well, you're going to think this is kind of weird because I'm one of those people who can eat anything for breakfast and oh. I usually eat what's in the refrigerator or in the cupboards or whatever. Yeah. Um, so today is, I hope I can say this, but mm. I hope uh, today is National Quesadilla Day. And I looked <gasps> at what was happening with all of my meals and it was the only meal that I could have a quesadilla. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Yeah. So my, my daughter requested bean and cheese burritos for tonight and I think I might have to pivot. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great yeah so you had um a quesadilla for breakfast yeah with a nice uh like roasted pepper and um and tomato kind of thing mm-hmm. i thought what can i wh- how can i make it healthy or healthier mm-hmm. so i just threw a, a bell pepper and some tomatoes in the oven on a lower temperature while i took a shower and got dressed yeah yeah right <laughs> and it was ready to go so yeah and do you you like to cook at home mm-hmm Okay. Yeah. Where does that come from? Where does the food thing come from for you? Well, I would imagine it comes from both parents. So um, my parents uh, divorced when I was four. Mm. And so I spent the school years with my mom um, in Nebraska, which is where they're from. So she moved us back after we, after they divorced. And my dad stayed here in California in Santa Maria. And two very different ways of cooking, even though they're both from Nebraska originally. So... Um, my mom taught me how to make pancakes, I think, when I was around 10. Hmm. And then when we were in high school, my mom remarried, and she doesn't like to make dinner. Hmm. So we made all the meals. And the this kids. is you you and how many other kids? Um, well, the, well, in high school, there were four of us, and I'm the youngest. Mm-hmm. So gradually, there were fewer. Less and less. And... Um, we made we made all the meals, so you just figure out what to do. And um, my stepfather was a farmer. We had a lot of beef in the freezer mm-hmm. <laughs> because he raised cattle. And once a year, he would take a cow to the to the processing plant, and we'd have a freezer full. And wow. we also had chickens. We had a lot of beef and chicken. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, but then I would come out to California and it'd be whatever, um, new fad that my dad was going through. You know, mm-hmm. there were some California staples like a quesadilla right. made with corn tortillas. It was, you know, that was a s- snack. Yeah. Um, that was, um, what we, what we did. So it was very uh, normal for me, even in Nebraska, because my mom, I don't, I don't know how long she lived in California, 10 years, maybe, um, you know, we would have burrito night, which yeah. you wouldn't like. No one else in Nebraska would have known what that was back then. But it's a it's a, a borrowing from California. Yeah, yeah. So um, I remember my dad going through the you know <clears throat> boneless, skinless chicken breast with steamed broccoli and brown rice phase. Yeah, which is probably when he was the age I am now. <laughs> and was this in the 80s by chance? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I know that meal. <laughs> I know that California that phase of California food. It's just very familiar. Yeah. yeah so, um I think what I what I have said to people is that my mom taught me how to cook and my dad taught me or at least illustrated to me from afar how to um, experiment. Hmm. Not a lot. I mean, I I, yeah. I can't. I'm. I wouldn't call myself a chef because I see the difference between a chef and a cook. Is that a chef creates new um, dishes and hmm. makes new flavors? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think refrigerator soup counts yeah. in that right. category. Which I'm really good at. I do refrigerator salad, refrigerator soup, oh, totally. refrigerator burritos. Even. That's my lunch. I mean, yeah. every day is like what is and, it? And um, so. So I have influence from both parents. And then when I started really doing it for myself, like consciously um, wanting to learn more about cooking, it coincides with getting bored with my first job. Oh, what was your first job? I used to work for six years. I was um, an environmental engineer in um, in a environmental health and safety consulting firm. So I did a lot of permitting. And uh, that was my problem. I didn't diversify within the company enough, Mm -hmm. which was kind of my fault. I started when the company was super, super small and it grew around me. And um, instead of trying to dabble in, in, in the kind of newfangled things that we were getting into I kind of stuck with I was I stayed being the all-rounder I could do in um, industrial hygiene I could do a little bit of everything that we did but none of like the new sexy stuff can you back up for a second did you study did you go to Cal Poly no I went to school in Missouri Uh, and I have a lot of places in the middle of nowhere in my life in <laughs> all different places in yes. the middle of nowhere i went to i went to truman state university mm-hmm. in, in northeast missouri kirksville missouri it was called northeast missouri state university back then mm-hmm. and studied chemistry and okay. i got the job i wanted which was to be um to work for an environmental health and safety consulting firm which mm-hmm. i did and um when i was uh i could i i looked back and it was like, oh, it co- coincided with when I was thinking about maybe I should get a new job. Uh, and um, I w- started throwing dinner parties. Hmm. You know, it started out with these huge, obnoxious themed Christmas dinner parties. <laughs> like what kind of theme? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> one was one was everything was white. Oh, it was all white. Everything it's was, lovely yeah. and precious <laughs> and all. <laughs> And I think that one was in the church basement up in San Jose. Oh, how fantastic. Um, because I didn't have a big enough place to borrow to do it. I love it. And um, so things like that. How many people were you cooking for? Oh, well, 
How this, obnoxious the, was it? it you, this is how obnoxious it was because uh, at some point in the 90s, I bought a full set of William Sonoma dishes. Wow. And the next year, the guests, and I'm, I'm a 12 person. You know, you have your oh. six people and your eight people. Well, I'm a 12 person. <laughs> and I now have 14 because uh. the following year, there were 14 people. And that's, so you just, you're like a goldfish. The bigger the bowl, the bigger the goldfish. Yeah, yeah. and so I had to go to Williams-Sonoma and buy a whole, two whole sets of um, of the place setting. Wow. Two, two place settings, yeah. So you're having these massive dinner parties. What kind of things were you ser- serving at that Oh, time? we did duck once, with no, goose once, which freaked out my roommate because, you know, it was it's not common. And yeah. it freaked me out because I there were... As many cups of fat came off that duck as the duck weighed in pounds. So it was like oh, it was like a four pound duck and four cups of fat. It was ridiculous. So where? Wait, 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 wait. So if you have a four pound duck, not duck, goose. Okay, goose, goose, okay, goose, 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 goose. But if four pounds of matter come off of that, what's left? No, four cups. Okay, and, okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> still, still, that's a it crazy was, ratio. It was crazy, and I've learned that about goose. Mm. And in Britain and in shishi stores here, you can buy goose fat to fry your right. potatoes in, which I would never do. But they say, oh, no, I'm thinking duck fat. They say no, it's is goose the fat. Best. It's goose fat. Okay, okay. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to look. I'm up. sure they're both. I'm sure they're both great. But now that you mention that, I don't know if I'll ever do it. No. Mm. Um, so you were at this very boring job, or not boring. It wasn't Let very boring. Let me not say that. I had but it's a job you were tinkering. Its time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So you started falling in love with entertaining, it sounds like. Well, that's interesting because people were like, you should become an event planner. Mm-hmm. And so I pondered that for a couple of years. And then I went to an event management company. I took oh. my project management skills and turned them into events management. I wasn't an event manager at the company, but I was mm-hmm. part of the team. And I did that for a while. Hmm. And yeah. then what from there? I went to seminary after that. Okay. So and where did you go for seminary? I went to England. I went to seminary in Cambridge. Okay. So that's when England started for yes. you. How'd you get into Cambridge? I mean, I know you're super smart, but that is something. Um, I got in through the back door because I went to seminary. And so I was accepted by the seminary. And um, then when we were choosing what academic pathway I would take, I took one of the Cambridge academic pathways. And I, it's really interesting for undergrad there. So I got a second undergraduate degree Mm -hmm. for seminary, which doesn't happen here in the U.S. Um, You have a trial year. And Cambridge does not officially matriculate you into the university until you pass your first year of exams. Oh, wow. And Stringent. Yes. And just like in Harry Potter, um, the the exams aren't until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So right. Your A-levels? Is, am I saying that right? I don't know. That's the for the high school thing. ones, okay. yeah. <laughs> They're called A-levels. <laughs> I'm pretending to know anything about <clears throat> British education. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I passed my exams, and I did my... I did all three years, and mm-hmm. I was ordained while I was... Um, I was ordained after I finished seminary. Mm-hmm. And I um, was ordained in Manchester. Wow. And was there for almost four years. And then I went to this middle of nowhere town, um, Warrington, which is in the middle of nowhere on the way to everywhere, <laughs> because it's part of the way between Manchester and Liverpool. And it was built to, it was built up in order to take the overflow from these two industrial towns. Mm. So people just lived there. Yeah. 
And um, it has both an east-west train line and a north-south train line. Which oh, so is it why really is so, a hub. Yeah, yeah. So like the Glasgow train, it's the last place the train from Glasgow stops before it goes to London. Hmm. And then it just goes straight to London. You're lucky you got to stay after you were ordained. I, I I think you are anyway, right? How did you yeah. How did you get to stay? Oh, because um, the Church of England requires that if they ordain you, you have to work in their church. <laughs> ah, okay. So yeah, I had to find in order to be ordained, I had to find what they call a curacy, which is like a residency for mm-hmm. um, clergy. So you know, like a doctor is a qualified doctor, but has a residency yes. underneath people. A curacy is the same thing. You're ordained. You're a priest. Mm-hmm but you work for somebody else. Okay. So I had to find one of those before they would even ordain me. Did you grow up Episcopalian? I or, did. Okay. Yes, I'm a cradle Episcopalian. So uh, I know bits and pieces about other denominations, but um, uh, what cripples me is when people start talking about wider things and how things are done in other churches. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You only know what you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so after you, you were in, I mean, I want to get into your radio work cause I know right. that was a big part of your living overseas. Yeah. Right. So how did you, how did that begin for you? Well, when I moved to Warrington, I moved to the Warrington campus of the university of Chester. So I was chaplain there mm. and the head of radio uh, Dave Grimshaw, great guy, Christian. He thought the chaplain, the first chaplain for this campus, should have a radio show that the students worked on. Mm. And so that's how it started. And he talked to me about it from the very beginning, but it wasn't until my third full academic year, he just looked at me and he said, if you're going to do it, there's no way to practice. There's no way to rehearse. You just go in the studio and you do it and you feel your way around and you eventually get better. Wow. And so that's what we did. Yeah. He gave me my first producer, Jake Garner. We went in there and we just did our thing and we kind of slowly built the format of the show around how it was going. So what so what was the format of the show? What was the focus of the show? Um, it was a magazine format show. Okay. And the University of Chester's radio program at the time was focused, was modeled after commercial music radio stations. Mm-hmm. So we were supposed to have, they wanted us to have something like 15 songs an hour yeah. with very little talk in between. And, and I said, well, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> and so I had a magazine format, which is where I would have guests come on. And the compromise in the end was no more than seven minutes of an interview mm. followed by a song. So we had about seven or eight songs an hour. Uh, we At different points in time, because it went for five years, we had... Um, the weather, we had the news, we um, had a what I called the education track in my first few years because I'd fallen so far out of popular music that I had no idea <laughs> what was on the radio. And I lived and worked on a university campus. And so I'd hear oh, all of funny. these songs and I wouldn't know who they were or what it was. And, yeah. And so each week um, we would have a new track that um, would I would be introduced to and and you would edumacate yourself yes, and everybody else. Exactly. And then by the time I finished um, five years of that and, and on my way to moving here, I knew everything that was on the UK charts. Yeah, so hip. <laughs> so, yeah. so hip. When I, when I, I was asked to DJ, um, I DJed a couple things, but one of them was... Um, a silent disco. Do you know what a silent disco is? Oh my is? gosh. We just experienced it for the first time last year up at the Whale Rock Music Festival. It is 
so much fun. It is fun. It's bizarre, but it's it fun. Is. And if somebody describes it to you, you're like, what? Yeah, why would that so, be fun? Yeah, so the students would be like, yeah, we just had a silent disco. And I'd be like, what's that? And they would describe it. I'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. No. But doing it, oh. I went to one of them and I walked into the bar because the bar was on campus because mm-hmm. this is Britain, not America. Mm-hmm. And the bar was on campus. And I'm like, what is going on? They're all dancing. None of them are dancing the same. And <laughs> <laughs> that's I, very that's true. Alcohol? Or is that something else? And um, what they have is these silent disco competitions. So you have two different DJs and you switch your headphones to red or green, whichever one you want. And so I was up against this fairly famous, regionally famous DJ for freshman week one year. And um, it was a competition. So the, the equipment tallies how much time... Um, you are being listened to versus the other one. So it's how many minutes total? Probably something like that. Okay. And um, and I can't hear. I only mm-hmm. have my playlist, but I can't hear my playlist. I can only see. Hmm. Well, actually, that wasn't the case. It was I couldn't change my playlist because I had MP3'd everything right. in order. It's set. It was set, right? Yeah. And he had his professional DJ kit, so he could do what he... If they didn't... If all of them were my color, not his color, yeah. he would pick a different song, and I couldn't do that. Yeah, right. In the end, I went out. <laughs> what are the tracks that you put on there? Do you remember? Well, I don't remember, but I know one time I DJed, and I don't know if this was the time. I looked at when they, I asked somebody, when you're in the British education system, when would your first dance be? And when would mm. your last dance be? Mm. And I looked at the ages of the of the students who would be there, 18, 19, 20, and when their first dance would have been and when their last dance would have You're been. Brilliant. And I picked the top song from that year. From seventh grade yeah, or whatever. Yeah, and they were right. all like, oh, Father Ian, that was great. That was fantastic. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, you knew the formula. So for anybody who doesn't know what a silent disco is, I mean, the way we experienced it is at Whale Rock, they have a big tent and they have, I think they only have one DJ for this, but he's got two or even three, I think, different tracks that you can listen to. You get wireless headphones and you can switch it to, I think it's red, green, or blue and uh, on a button on your headphones and each of those colors corresponds to a different set of songs. And anyone who has, say, red on their headphones is dancing to the same thing. Right. So you look around, and especially in the dark, it's pretty funny. We did it with our kids because it was they just loved it. You look around in this dark tent, and there are red, green, and blue lights everywhere. But sometimes, like you said, it will be all green, and everyone's having so much fun dancing <laughs> to, like, I don't know, ABBA or something. Um, but it's this funny thing when you walk in, if you don't have headphones on, it's completely silent. Yeah, you don't have any idea what's going on. And yeah. people just look weird. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's so fun. But it's one of those, like... <clears throat> safe, fun things to do. As a family, we found that really, really fun. So, okay, you're going to DJ our next silent disco, Oh, I that'll think. be scary. That'll be scary. My last DJ experience, I did the top song from every year that I was at the University of Chester. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So what was the last year you were there? 2016. Did you come back? Oh, that recent? Yeah. Yep. Wow. And did you come straight back here? Yep. And why San Luis Obispo? Um, I'm sort of kind of from the area. My dad lives in Santa Maria. And so I knew the area. I wanted to go back to the Bay Area uh, because I like to be around lots of people. Yeah. Um, Well, that is a slight misguided statement. Mm -hmm. I like 
urban areas. I like cities. Yeah. And I've done my small town thing. <laughs> Sounds like you've done more than enough. I've done more than enough. Yeah. And I wasn't even a small town kid when I lived in a small town. Yeah. So, um, uh, but I knew San Luis Obispo had changed. Mm -hmm. We didn't spend much time here because it was where my dad would pick me up from the train when I'd, mm. you know, I'd come back to California. I'd visit my sister in Oakland, get on the train, come down here. Um, we, when we were kids, we would buy our school clothes here because yeah, you'd shopping. have the, you'd have the trendy clothes, which was another reason we never fit in when we went <laughs> in mm, school. Yeah. And, um, mm. but we really hadn't, when I say we, I say my sister right up from me and I never really engaged with San Luis Obispo as adults because we would drive down from the Bay area straight mm. to Santa Maria. But I knew it had changed. And so when I came here for, for my final interview, I was like, can I live in a town of 45,000 people? Mm. And um, I won't name any places, but a couple of the establishments downtown where just were like, I can do this. Mm. It's not an isolated place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is an isolated place, but it's filled full of such a mix of people and a mix yeah. of things to do. Mm. Do you think that's the university has to have something to do with it? I have um, analyzed this with my armchair socialism, PH, not socialism, social, like, sociology, so sorry. <laughs> socialism, wait a minute. You can't say the S word here in America. Um, no, with my like armchair sociology PhD that I have. Mm. And um, I think the university has a lot to do with it, but I think it's kind of, um, I think in these last de this last decade, it's probably um, been kind of a, um, a, um, a circular thing. Mm. I think over time, the university has... San Luis Obispo has always been ahead of like Santa Maria because of the university. Mm. But in this last um, 10 years, particularly the 20 years since the wine industry has taken off and yeah. the craft spirits industry and the farm to table food um, has taken off, that that has attracted people who have nothing to do with the university. Yes, agreed, for sure. And so it'll, it's just kind of feeding itself now. Mm -hmm. And even if the university became less prominent, um, it, it would still last for a while, yeah. I think. I'm curious that I know you won't say, but um, the places that you, the two places downtown, were they restaurants that made you feel like you could come here? Um, one was a wine bar that served a, the perfect food to go with wine. Oh, fantastic. Um, and, Cause that's, that's what it was. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll have a, I'll try one of these taster flights mm -hmm. and I'll get a charcuterie plate and everything. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't expecting very much, but it was just like being in France. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And mm. then just kind of like the, from then on the diversity, I know we have a lot of burgers and a lot of barbecue and a lot of pizza. Can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> I can't, I mean, I know I get it. The Cal Poly, I, I understand, but burgers and beer, I've probably already said this on this podcast. I don't even remember cause I say it so much. I just, do we really need another burger we, place? We don't, mm -mm. we don't. And, um, but that's what, you know, we have a lot of that, but there are bits and pieces in between there. Yes, there are. You know, right. and, um, I would say we, the last time I spent any appreciable amount of time in San Luis Obispo was 2011. Mm. I brought some friends out. We went to four different places in, uh, in the state. And the last place we went to was a beach house rental in Pismo. Mm -hmm. And we came into San Luis for dinner and to cruise around and see what was going on. And it was still a little bit different then, yeah. you know, and that was only five years before I moved back. Right. 2011 and, doesn't feel yeah. that far away. And, you know, there were, there were, we, when we were looking at where to go, 
there there weren't a lot of places that were interesting and now there there are quite a few places that Mm -hmm. are interesting Mm -hmm. and um if you include the county as well yeah there's some great places yeah Uh, and what constitutes interesting for you well i know that we don't have um the greatest diversity of ethnic food Mm -hmm. in this town totally you know if you go to central london you Mm. it's hard to get just plain food (laughs) give me just plain food please (laughs) just once (laughs) except for the fact that every ethnic restaurant in britain has you can get chicken and chips but um Hmm. but never mind the ethnic food and the ethnic influences which are definitely coming into some of the food but just the farm to table stuff Mm -hmm. that the caterers are doing Mm -hmm. if you go to a wine pickup party or you go to something like the um afternoon of epicurean delights which is the fundraiser for for capslow the things that they're doing with the fruits and vegetables and and meat that is produced in this county is mm-hmm. just phenomenal. Yeah. And it's it's not Thai and it's not Vietnamese and it's not um, you know, Indian. It's yeah. it's just it they took these ingredients and said these things taste good together. It's its own thing for sure. Yeah. I don't know how to describe <clears throat> that either. Because farm to table, I mean, lots of things can be farm to table. But I mean a, a burger could technically be farm to table. Yeah. But that's not how I think of farm to table food. And California, especially here with our bounty, we have a specific kind of cuisine that I think does really well. Yeah. And it is it, it is very Mediterranean like. Mm-hmm. You know, don't do a lot of fancy things with it. Yeah. You know, and let the flavors of the food stand out themselves. And I wish I knew more about that. Mm. I mean, I just haven't taken the time to really study how um, fresh foods Mm. go together just naturally. Mm. But I don't have to because I (laughs) just go (laughs) anywhere here and and get that. And they're particularly the catered events. There are some really good caterers. Who are you? Are you a, wow, so many questions just started just then. Do you, are you a member of a wine club where you go to pick up? I am a member at three Mm -hmm. and I would say all three of them have chosen caterers for pickup parties that have been fantastic. Hmm. I've been, I, I only let myself do one winemaker's dinner a year, which I don't think I've done one this year Hmm. because they're super expensive. They (laughs) But, you know, Ember's been a caterer, Flora and Fauna um, has been a caterer. Um, there's somebody who did all Spanish food for the, um, mm. for the winery that does only Spanish varietals up in Paso. Yeah. And I was just there and they had this, just the smallest cheese and meat platter, just mm. tiny. It was probably slightly larger than, it was probably the size of an 11 by 17 piece of paper. Yeah. And it was beautifully laid out. And they had several different types of meat, several different types of cheese, all of which went really well with the wine. It was just, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And when you when you have access to that, you I know, know, I don't need to learn how to put it together myself. Yes, that's very true. And I do, though, sometimes, like, when I have friends from Britain come. Well, you can find those things, too. You yeah, can source in the up store. your own stuff. Yeah, they're in the store. And I, and, and I can go, and um, I have this ongoing Facebook fight with yes tell me about that (laughs) (laughs) he was an undergrad at the so cambridge has a bunch of colleges and i had a seminary and i had a cambridge college at both Mm -hmm. and he was an undergrad at the college where i was on placement as a as a seminarian Mm -hmm. 
And so he ended up doing his PhD in the U.S. and has become an academic in the U.S. Oh. Yes, and he he just moved from his first academic post, which was in rural Ohio. Oh, wow. He Welcome gr- to the yeah, United States. This half-French, half-British kid who grew up in central London, mm-hmm. ended up in rural Ohio. That's got to be karma for something. I don't <laughs> That's know. That's whiplash. <laughs> yeah. And so this ongoing fight about there, there's no good food in America. Mm. And it's like, that's absolutely not true. And um, what I haven't thrown into the conversation is the size. Mm. First of all, there is great stuff. The best be- piece of beef I've ever had was in western Nebraska. I mean, that makes sense yeah. to me. I mean, it was just, I, I've been, I've been to the, all of the steakhouses here. Mm-hmm. I've been to steakhouses in the Bay Area. I've been to the big touristy steakhouse in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. My whole family, and if you put my whole, all of the siblings together, you cover a good portion of the U.S. and the world. Mm-hmm. And that's, we all agree that's the best piece of beef we've ever had. Was it seasoned just uh, salt, pepper? Yeah. Yeah. Not like a big sauce or anything. No, no big sauce. Um, it was aged appropriately. Mm-hmm. It, they don't do, on the western side of Nebraska, there aren't these big farms where the cattle can't move. Oh, Oh, that's interesting. Right, so they have, you know... Muscle. Yeah, they they live like cows should live. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say like... I don't know if it's certified free-range organic kind of thing, but it's it's not what gets described on television about what's happening in the beef industry. Yes. Um, Or at least I haven't seen it. Mm. And um, so the cheese, him being French... And me being Californian, mm-hmm. we have had arguments, so many arguments about cheese. Cheese arguments. And we produce some of the most beautiful cheeses in mm. this state. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, there is this great cheese in France. I can't remember what it's called. And it only comes out at the end of August and the beginning of September. Oh, my gosh. I think I know what and it is. And it's tiny. And Pont it's, Levesque. Is that what it's no, called? It's, okay. I, if you said it, I would know. But okay. I can't remember. I'd have to look it up. And it, it's wrapped in chestnut leaves, which apparently mm. a lot of cheeses are in, in Beautiful, France. Though. And it's I mean, tiny. And I would try to make a trip to London during that period. So I go to Borough Market, which mm. is on the south bank of London, and buy... Um, buy one of these and eat it on the train ride home. And that would be my favorite cheese. And then I discovered this tiny, uh, nondescript uh, creamery up in Sonoma County. Mm -hmm. And I was actually in Santa Barbara at the cheese shop in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, if you listen to my my podcast of my cheese episode, you'll hear me say to the guy, and I'll take the one in the crock because one uh, cheese in a crock is always good. And it's in that, you know, that little, yes. yeah. So I got that one. And, and we're was, not talking about the cheese spread that you get from Swiss Colony. No, no, no. Not no. that. <laughs> Wait, what? No, that's true because right. that's Swiss that's, Yeah, that's, a, that's in a crock. That's but you know what I mean by the little, yes, yeah. Yes, and beautiful, yeah. And I got it. And um, I went to take it out of the little crock to put it on a plate for it to warm up. Yeah. And it was like liquid inside. And I thought, oh, no, I have to be really careful. And I went to eat it, and it was it was just beautiful. There was no way to describe mm. just how beautiful it was. Yeah. It was cheese has that. Mm. It ha- there are certain foods that have that property that they can make. They can change your mood, and I think cheese for sure is one of them. Yeah. I think chocolate. I think bread. Um, they're like these elemental. They're processed. 
Yeah. But, um, I mean, heavily processed actually. Yeah. Right. You know, it's not like a peach off the tree or something, which is also, you can't just eat chocolate off the tree. No, (laughs) but there's something, I don't know. I talked with a winemaker about that once that there are foods that are unprocessed that can, you know, make me weep. But then there are foods that are very processed that have the, the thumbprint of the maker on them that Mm. are so evocative. Um, and it sounds like that little crock of whatever you got to find out what the name of it was. Yeah. Well, the one in France and the one here, the one here, can I say, can I say names? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's the piano forte by the Andante Creamery. All of her, um, all of her cheeses have musical names and it's the piano forte. And I've only managed to find it twice, once Mm -hmm. in Santa Barbara and once at Whole Foods here. Here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Worth checking out. But is that one seasonal? Not that I know of, okay. but it's not one of that she makes all the time. Okay, that's what the cheesemaker in Santa Barbara—not the cheesemaker, the cheesemonger in Sa- Santa Barbara—said. She doesn't produce a lot of that one, but okay. all her other cheeses are really nice as well. Okay. But like cowgirl creamery, I know um, the Mount Tam. I I, I want to like <laughs> rub it on my face when I get it. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, and even even inland, even in the valley, there's this one that's sold at every farmer's market here, which is the Vintage Cheese Company. Yes, I've I seen love them. their Sheep Blue. That's mm. the one I get. I yeah. get it you know, every time I'm at the farmer's market. I get the Sheep Blue. Yeah. Um, and so we, when I did my cheese show, my I was on a hunt to find out why we don't have many creameries here. Yeah, and it's because we don't have any water. For water, you need water for grazing of your sheep, goat, and cows. And that's why we don't have a dairy industry anymore. So there's one one farm with goats and sheep on it over in Cambria. Stepladder. Stepladder. Mm -hmm. And... um, That's so beautiful. It is. I've never been to the creamery, but I love their cheese. You can go anytime. It's so... It's... I mean, it's... I don't want to say it's at a lateral spot with Hearst Castle, but it's similar. It's got the same kind of view. It's up in those hills, and it's just so special. I've heard. And their cheese is wonderful. Yes. Um, and then we have Central Coast. Right. Which is up in... Um, at, um, is it Paso? Paso. Okay. Yeah. I got to see how cheese is made there. That I've was never great. been there. I've always wanted to go. Yeah. And then um, we have... The fourth one, which is this woman in Santa Margarita, can't remember her name. Uh, it's not Rinconada. They don't do it, do they? No, but she just she had just started her production right after I finished my cheese show. Oh, and I've had her cheese since I had it about a month ago. Hmm. And then we have Cal Poly. Right, right, and now, so it's interesting. Harmony was a dairy co-op was, for a yeah. really long time. And I know that they've been trying to kind of bring that back, um, but I don't think production will happen there. I think it will be shipped in maybe even from Cal Poly. But it's amazing that Harmony put us on the map with with dairy and yeah. creameries. Yeah, there used to be a lot of cows here, mm-hmm. dairy cows here, and there we just don't have any water anymore. Yeah. So. Tell me about um, starting the Playing With Food show, which is such a great idea. Um, tell me how you decided to do that. I 
kind of didn't. Um, I have parishioners who are affiliated with KCBX who mm-hmm. thought, you know, saw my resume and said, we need to get you on the radio. They introduced me to Marisa, who's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And um, she said, oh, if somebody's given up their show, can you fill this slot? Mm-hmm. And so this was all very fast because I arrived, I started my job in May and this was August. Oh, wow. And, or maybe even July, my first episode went out in end of August, beginning of September. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, we want something on food. And I'm like, okay, um, I like food, but I want to do something with um, people's stories and people's journeys mm-hmm. and food, mm-hmm. kind of like you're doing. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. Um, but they want something just kind of straight on food. So I do build in stories in there as well, because mm-hmm. um, the tagline for my radio show in at the University of Chester was every person has an interesting story and we're here to share your interesting story. Mm. And Mm. I truly believe that. And so the people I've interviewed for these last three years all have super interesting stories, some of which is on the cutting room floor, but, Mm. you know, archived away just in case I have time to build something Mm -hmm. that's solely story-based rather than food-based. And for example, I went out to... Uh, hunt for seaweed. The guys in Los Osos, is that where they're based out of? Um, I think he lives in Paso. Oh, really? Yeah. And he s- sells at the farmer's markets. Yes. And, and, and that's how I found him. Okay. It's, I would never have thought, I would have never thought about seaweed right. for my show. And um, I went out hunting seed with, seaweed with him and I said, so is this your primary business? And he said, no, I work at Cal Poly. <laughs> Is that right? Does he work in like marine biology or something no. like that? No, no, something completely separate. Yeah. And I just thought that was really great. That's that mm. he has a story. And, yeah. you know, um, it's going to be an interesting story because everybody, everybody has one. Even going down and talking to the bread maker in Los Alamos, mm. you know, where mm. it costs like 12 or $15 for a loaf of bread. It's still an interesting story of how he got, fell into that yeah. and um, what, he, what he does with his bread. And um, even the kind of more, um, well, we used the S word before, kind mm. of like the whole socialist bit of it. We talked about that. It's like, mm. you know, what's it like? Um, selling a $15 loaf of bread when, you know, you've got people who work for you who couldn't buy that bread. We, you we asked talked about, that question? Yeah. I don't think it made it on the air, but... Well, what a brave <laughs> but, thing to ask. Yeah. And like, we all want to know what he thinks about that. Yeah. And, you know, he told me some of the things, you know, all of his leftovers go to the to the food bank mm. and and his, his um, staff get first right of refusal for day-old bread. Mm-hmm. Well, not day-old at that point, but it'll be day-old when they come back in the morning. Yes, right. Um, and so, you know, there there are some good people doing some good things here, mm-hmm. and their stories, their, you, you'll only know that if you ask their story or talk with them about their yeah. story. Yeah. Um, if you just focus on the food or just focus on the transaction, mm-hmm. then, um, which, you know, to put my kind of like theology hat on. Please. We are, we, we've known this for a long time. We've known this our entire lifetime that our lives have just become a series of transactions, mm-hmm. but we are m- much more multidimensional than that. Yes. And food brings that out in people. Mm-hmm. Food, food is how we can share our stories with one another. Yeah. So right. I was reading this book when I was on retreat 
and I don't know if I'm going to read any more of it because I'm angry. Mm. I'm angry because every single word written in that book is what I've been wanting to write for the last 20 years. <laughs> I've had that resentment. <laughs> I, was like, I know that what? resentment. I'm like, she stole phrases from my brain. Oh. Um, so, but, you know, she was talking about how this new ministry is starting up around um, meals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus brought us together, brought the 12 disciples together for a meal, which is what we do on Sundays. And I've done communion around a table with meals. Mm -hmm. I actually um, videotaped Thanksgiving dinner as Holy Communion Mm -hmm. at the University of Chester's Warrington Campus Chapel as part of my interview process. Now, it wasn't originally part of my interview process. We were doing that anyway, but they wanted to see what I did in chapel, and so we videotaped it and sent it in as part of my application. And I wanted to do more of that, and this book talks about how whole ministries, like weekly ministries, are around the table. And um, I want to do... I want to do more of that. Yeah. I just haven't. So I need to just do. Sometimes yes. you just need to do. Well, or you need to talk to somebody like, say, me, who would love to help, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, love to make that possible and probable even. Um, it's funny that you bring up, uh, well, something that you said made me think about, oh, it was the series of transactions comment. Mm. I. It's funny, in the past several days, there have been a lot of things that have caused grief around me. I've seen people get really sick. There's, there's been a death in our neighborhood, lots of things like that. And this may seem really off topic, but you deal with people in grief a lot, Mm -hmm. um, in your job. What do you say to them? How do you, what is your approach with someone who has lost a loved one or, um, or I don't know, lost a job or here's a question that you never thought you'd get on a food podcast, but I'm, I'm being very selfish and I want to know what you would say. Well, uh, all three of my answers are going to sound very kind of trite, but they're real from experience. One is, um, there are a lot of platitudes out there and sometimes, sometimes, um, all anyone can hear is the platitude. You know, um, it's, it's the, it's a thing that everybody knows to say if they don't know what else to say. Mm-hmm. And so when you receive that, sometimes you're only in, that's all you can receive anyway. Yeah. Um, the other is every situation, every person is different and in a different place. And the third one is sometimes there are no words to say, mm. um, when, uh, when I've had to go to people's houses where their their children have died, mm-hmm. um, the stillborn, the the stillborn at 28 weeks, and she it was, um, I can't believe I'm saying this on a food podcast, mm-hmm. but the NHS made her carry it for two more weeks yeah. before they induce labor, which I thought was the cruelest thing they could mm-hmm. possibly do. Mm-hmm. But when I walked into her house. Uh, the first words out of my mouth were there. I don't have any words that are going to make you feel any better mm-hmm. about this. Um, because even a platitude at that point, you know, she could turn around and smack me or mm-hmm. her husband or whatever. Um, and that's another thing to remember, particularly when children die is that, um, you know, the husband's part of this as well. Yes, and people, that's true. Uh, people, um, think about the mother most of the time. So it's really trying to understand the situation and the person, but in general, just to say, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, if you're talking to the other person, and then listen. Mm -hmm. Um, And also to find a place to 
if, if you're willing to listen, if you're going to be that person who's doing the listening to, um, find a place within yourself where you're comfortable sitting with them in silence. Yeah. That was the first thing I thought is a lot of these people don't want to talk. Yeah. But they want, but they appreciate somebody there. Yeah. So the being with is the important bit. And I think that is one of the most challenging things for Westerners is because we're used to being with people and doing and saying and all sorts of things, but just sitting with another person, um, is, can be, can be difficult. It's funny because when you talk about the doing thing, I am completely guilty of that. I have like six pounds of chocolate chips in my pantry right now because I feel like I have to do something for these people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with giving cookies when someone's in grief, but, um, but yes, I'm just so programmed to do. And I think, I think that that is an interesting window into, uh, we as a society, when something goes wrong, inevitably somebody brings food. And I think that's very important. I think it's, I think if none of those other three fit into your situation, take over some cookies or a casserole. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people would ask me in Britain, they would be watching an American show or an American movie and somebody would take over a casserole and they would look at me and like, do they really do that? And I'm like, oh yeah. And then my stepfather died mm. and I went back. I, I got there a couple days after the funeral and, um, my mom is now living in this big farmhouse by herself. And she, not only is it America where everybody brings food when you're grieving, it's the Midwest where everyone brings food <laughs> when you're grieving. <laughs> and I just opened her refrigerator and I, I, I think wasting food is both immoral and unethical. Mm-hmm. And so I just went, oh my gosh. What are we going to do? So, um, and I'm used to this because I was halfway through my job at the University of Chester where I cooked every week and made sure that food didn't go to waste. So I looked at what's, what needs to be consumed now, Mm -hmm. what can be packaged up and consumed later and what can go in the freezer. And I just started organizing all this stuff. And like day three, my sister and my mom were just like, we're going to stop eating that, that you've repurposed into so many different meals now. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. We've done a good job, but they brought, I mean, there, there was, there was, I don't know. Uh, There was food for probably 50, 50 servings worth of, you know, 50 plates full of food that I helped just kind of, and I was putting it in, because I'm single, now my mom's single, I'm like, Mm. I know how to get this into single servings and all that kind of stuff. So, but I think that's, um, you know, it is what you can do, is you can always take something, and that will always, I think, I think as Americans, we will always receive that and understand that, that unspoken, nonverbal communication that says, I care, Mm -hmm. and I know that this is a difficult situation for you. You know this is a difficult situation for me. And that casserole just, that, that you know, does it all. It's lovely. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> just to stay kind of um, morbid, how about when it's your last meal, what do you want to eat? Actually, not morbid. As a celebration of your life, what would you like to eat? Oh, I have, I haven't thought, I only thought about that once when I was watching a, an episode of CSI where it, the end of the episode focused on the last meal and didn't go well. Um, but, uh, somebody made a comment about, um, 
not wanting your last meal to be the, your favorite meal mm-hmm. um, because of the circumstances. And it was about execution, really. It was mm-hmm. <laughs> so, to even be more morbid about it. Oh, yeah. you mean execution like as a way to die? Yeah. I thought you meant like execution of a meal, yeah, no. which sounds pretty no. interesting. So, <laughs> oh, but, if, but if I was with my family, uh, lots mm-hmm. of things are popping into my mind right now um, that have gone on through uh, you know my ministry, particularly in TV. But um, if I knew... This is what it is. Have you seen the film Chocola with Juliette Binoche? No. And Johnny Depp? No. Oh, okay. Chocola? Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah. sorry. Yes. Oh, I love Beautiful that Beautiful movie. movie. Yeah. Judy Dench plays this, the mother of, um, of, the, of the woman who doesn't like Juliette Binoche's um, chocolate store, mm-hmm. right? Because it's too, it's almost pagan. Yeah, right? because it's during Lent yeah. and she's very prudish and she's got her 11 year old son and she doesn't have a relationship with her mom because she's really prudish and her mom is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and Judy Dench is, is the mom or the grandma and she's got diabetes and she's not supposed to be in the chocolate shop, but she has a beautiful relationship. She develops a beautiful relationship with Juliet Binoche, who's running this chocolate shop in this little French town that opens during Lent when you're not supposed to be eating chocolate. And we all know that she has diabetes and about two thirds, three quarters of the way through the film, they, they throw a big birthday party for her and it's full of sweets and rich food and wine, all of the stuff that a diabetic shouldn't eat. Mm -hmm. And there's all of these shots of people laughing and hugging and having just the most wonderful time. And then the next morning, um, uh, Juliette Binoche goes out to the backyard and in the, in the lounge chair that the garden chair that uh, Judy Dench had finished the night in, she was still in. And she had died. Right. And I just thought, mm. yes, mm-hmm. that's that. If there's a wonderful way to go, that's it. Yeah. You know, and I've actually told my doctor that I'm like, if I become diabetic, <laughs> I, and I, the last time I was at my doctor, we, we talked about this. I said, if I become diabetic, that's how I want to die. Oh. She wasn't a hundred percent convinced. But <laughs> <laughs> It's been so good to catch up with you, Father Ian. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. And be sure to support the good folks who join me each episode. To learn more about any of my guests, visit letsgetconsumed.com. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Jamie Lewis.